G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. One of my great joys as a teenager was the ABC's 7.30 report. As an aside, that's probably all the information you need to know my success rate with girls at the time, but I digress. Specifically, I lived for the evenings when Kerry O'Brien would invite Prime Minister John Howard onto the program. O'Brien had his flaws as an interviewer, most notably a barely concealed bias, but he was a serious and highly intelligent journalist. Howard was the titanic political figure of his age in Australia and a master of handling the media. The talents of these two men elevated Australian politics, normally an extended parade of drab mediocrity, to the level of gladiatorial combat. It was brilliant entertainment and it served an important purpose. O'Brien was intent on nailing Howard and Howard believed in the importance of fronting up and fighting the battle. I quote, The politics of Kerry O'Brien were a mile away from mine, yet I appeared regularly on the program because it was a serious current affairs presentation. Unfortunately, we don't have many journalists like O'Brien anymore and we don't have any politicians like Howard. These twin facts have put the forensic, long-form political interview at risk. I'm joined by someone who understands their importance better than anyone, Rob Burley. Rob is one of the most respected and experienced editors in British political television, with a CV that includes stints as editor of the BBC's live political programs, The Andrew Marr Show, Politics Live, and Newswatch. His recent book is wonderfully titled, Why Is This Lying Bastard Lying to Me? Rob calls it a history of political television and a love letter to its highest form, the long-form forensic political interview. I stumbled on it by chance, and I'm glad I did. It's one of my books of the year. Rob, welcome to Australiana. Thank you very much, Will. Great to be here. Maybe to start, tell me a bit about your journey. Tell me about what's led uh, led us to this conversation. God, that's going that's going back away now. So, um, yeah, I think the roots of it really. I don't I don't know what, it, what what the situation in in Australia was with this, but in the 70s and 80s, when I grew up in the UK, we had three channels until 1982, when we had four. And that was amazing. And so we didn't have much choice about what we would watch on TV. So in a way, I was forced on a wet sort of, you know, Sunday in November as a kid to turn on the telly and look at ITV, the commercial main commercial channel show, which was called Weekend World, which was a show hosted by a guy called Brian Walden, who was a former MP who interviewed the leading politicians of the day. And it was I didn't understand it, really. At first, I didn't know what they were talking about. And I was, as I got older, I was able to sort of decode and understand more about the, the concepts and the, the, the things that were at stake in these conversations. But I did know that something important was happening and something consequential was happening. And I became kind of addicted to it, really, as a kind of as a format. And I became fascinated by the way that politicians and, and interviewers interact on television in myriad numbers of programs that we had uh, in the UK in those days. Um, and I followed that through really in a, as a career. You know, I think sometimes you get the career you kind of you, you need, even if you don't know you're doing it. And somehow I ended up directing myself towards that world and, and, and becoming someone who worked with people like Andrew Neil, who's one of the greats of the current era, and Jonathan Dimbleby, who's also a fantastic interviewer, and, and, and numerous others. So the road, the road I'm, I'm on now started back in, you know, probably 1977 or something, when I was eight. And... There was nothing else to watch that day, and I ended up watching something that sort of turned me on to politics. You said in the book that the role of editor is the best job in television, in your in your view. What's an editor do on a political television program? 
there was always there's always a little bit of confusion because people have in their minds as editors who actually edit film and of course they are people they're, they're, they're people very important people in the, in the in the tv production process but the editor uh, of a program is a bit like the editor of a newspaper in that they make the decisions about what's on that show and and that doesn't and, and they don't just do that on their own they obviously do that in conjunction with the um presenter but the the culture of british television anyway is that that presenter is not the editor-in-chief the editor is the editor and the presenter is the person that carries through that particular program to you know under direction really of the editor and so that's a really powerful and intoxicating role to have and one you need to take seriously and it's and, and you know one i really really enjoyed um so that's why I, th- I say it's the best job that's interesting and and the way that you say that you know that it is powerful it is intoxicating it can be addictive that can also lend itself at times if you're not careful to to pushing a particular agenda or, or letting biases get in the way and, and I've, I've heard you speak about how you mitigate against that We'll get to that. But before yeah. we do, the thing which I loved about this book is that it looks at the political interview as an art form, as a craft. And I hadn't even I hadn't considered it that way. And, and as someone now who interviews people on a weekly basis, I loved hearing the the way that you would go about preparing or helping your, your presenters prepare for an interview and all the strategy that sits behind it. I'll start with the question that you think is the best question you've seen asked of a political interviewer. It was asked of Sir Robin Day, arguably the father of political interviewing in the UK by public intellectual Bernard Levine. And he said, is it fair? Is it fair to interrogate politicians as a political interviewer does, given how challenging the politician's job is? How would you go about answering that question? I think I'm really um, I'm really glad you noticed that because actually I think the first person in all the interviews I've done is actually alighted on that particular question quote which i thought was really important and arguably sort of is one of the is one of the counterweights to a perception one might have from the title of the book uh, and also from the kind of general culture which is that you know, somehow politicians are all lying bastards i don't think they are i think i think actually that's not fair so I, and I, I do say that in the book but that quote is designed to kind of point towards that so the reason that we have to do it though the reason that we the reason that political interviewers should be questioning politicians is because politicians need to be held to account and some of them behave honorably some of them are doing their best some of them are not. Uh, some of them are inadequate. Some of them are very good. So, you know, what, and, and some of them have things to explain. I mean, one of the, if there's a heroine in this book, it's Margaret Thatcher, because what the way she approached this question was that it was absolutely part of her duty to submit herself to these sorts of encounters, because A, it was accountability, and B, it was her opportunity in a way to be the teacher that she thought she was to the nation to say why I'm right. And why you need to follow me, and why what I'm suggesting as the as the sometimes painful medicine this country needs is the right thing to do. Now, how else can you do that unless you go out and make the argument? Yet we have a generation uh, to leap forward briefly. We have a generation of politicians now in the UK who seem to want to skip that bit of the process, just get into power really f- for reasons that maybe that they may be altruistic, they may be selfish, but they aren't explained. Uh, and, and that's extraordinary. Liz Truss, who, who was the shortest serving prime minister in, in British history in last year, had Thatcherite uh, you know, outfits and Thatcherite kind of mannerisms, but didn't have that essential respect for the argument and for the process when she was proposing quite radical things. And I'm not even making I'm not interested in a judgment about those things being right or wrong. I'm just thinking that if you want to go and say, look, we, we have to break the status quo in this country. With a, with a radical a radical approach to tax and spend, et cetera, et cetera. Make the argument. Go and put yourself through the mill. That's what Mrs. Thatcher did. So, mm. yeah, so I, I'm digressing, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an important function and the best politicians embrace it. 
Well, the, the really interesting comparison that comes up in the book is between two Tory PMs. It is between Thatcher and more recently Boris Johnson. And I think you you enjoy looking at those two as a, as a comparison in how they both approached journalists and then political journalism more specifically. Yeah. Talk me through those respective approaches and maybe how does it shine a light on broader changes amongst the political class when it comes to how they approach journalists? Sure. I mean, as I say, Mrs. Thatcher, first of all, came to this with respect for the process. She saw the media, she saw television as an essential component in her ability to speak to the, to the electorate and to be held to account, but also to make her intellectual arguments. And she did so from within herself. You know, this, this, this was not something that was handed to her by advisors who told her she should do something or shouldn't do something. They would try, but she would decide what she wanted to do. Fast forward to Boris Johnson in uh, 2019. And there was a tradition, and I hope it returns, but there was, and it's now in the past tense, a tradition in the UK during a general election campaign that every leader of the main political parties, which would be essentially the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democrats, and then the Nationalists, uh, depending on what you know, depending on their level of support, and others would submit themselves to an interview uh, with the, the sort of premier interviewer of the day. And that would be half an hour's worth of interviewing live, not, not necessarily live, but certainly broadcast at prime time on BBC One. That's a big deal. That gets to a, a very, very significant audience. And this has always been something that has essentially been agreed. And you can never compel people to do this, but people like me who negotiated these encounters would always basically rested upon the good faith and the norms that applied. Now, what happened in 2019 was that Boris Johnson never, his people never really answered the question to me and to others at the BBC whether he would do this interview. So we had to go on and work on the basis that given he wasn't saying he wouldn't and that he was saying, well, dates might be an issue. We can talk about logistics. We did pursue the interviews with other people, including the Labour Party's Jeremy Corbyn. And that was a very bad interview for Jeremy Corbyn, probably one of the most damaging interviews in, in any election campaign for a major leader. It was conducted with Andrew Neil and it was disastrous for Corbyn. And then after that, it transpired that Boris Johnson wasn't going to do the interview. And the reason he waited, the reason he strung us along was to make sure that his opponent did do the interview and was damaged. Now, that is dishonourable. It shows contempt for the process. And it's the kind of thing Mrs. Thatcher would never have done. So, you know, for Boris Johnson, getting into power was the important thing. Doing it honourably was a secondary question. And in the end, it, it turns out that what we hear subsequently from various accounts is that Johnson may have wanted to, to do the interview himself. He kind of waxed and waned on the question. His wife apparently had views on it and thought he maybe should. But in the end, his advisors decided. So that was Dominic Cummings, who was his very powerful advisor, and another guy called Lee Kane, who essentially decided it was best if Boris didn't take the risk. So there's the difference. Now, in terms of the more general approach these days to scrutiny, I think there is a reluctance to be scrutinised. Uh, there's a, a lack of buying into the concept that Mrs. Thatcher embraced, which is that you have to, and Tony Blair embraced that you have to do it, and it's the right thing to do. And, you know, it's get away with the bare minimum. And that, I was at an event last week in Yorkshire in, in the UK, and I spoke to a, an audience about the book. And I said to them, you know, in my view, if people won't submit themselves to scrutiny, you shouldn't vote for them. And, 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 the, and the response in the room was that that was the right thing, because it's contemptuous of the process and of the electorate. I'm very passionate about this, so I better shut up, otherwise I'll never never stop talking. You mentioned Cummings, and I seem to remember one of the two quotes that you start the book with is from Dominic Cummings, and I'll yes. paraphrase, but it's in Cummings, typically blunt, profane style. It's something like, why would you put, would you put this effing gaff machine in front of the media when we can effectively get away with, with yeah. not doing it? How do you think about the role of 
political advisors and spin doctors, which perhaps maybe came to prominence during the Blair years in the UK, and then then mm. you know it's now just a part of everyday business in politics. What role do they play in this trend that you've seen play out? Well, I mean, look, the truth is, if you're a political journalist, you don't like them because they're clever people who are, des- who are who are lining up on the other side to stop you doing what you ideally want to do which is to conduct the kind of interview that you know makes waves that changes things that moves things on that gets people to be more honest than they might have wanted to be that's revealing and of course that's sort of self-interest speaking so i understand why they exist and i think it's fair enough the problem that, that they've created is that they're actually ill-serving their masters increasingly because people just don't believe what politicians say in a very profound sense because they feel that they, they, people are clever enough to, to sort of spot the techniques that are used. They're literate enough to, to sort of understand that this man has been sent into a room to repeat the same phrase over and over again, ad nauseum. They know that that's happening because they're not stupid and they can hear it. So while you know, it was true in the 90s, well, the reason it's out with the 80s, in the 80s and 90s, the Labour Party had you know, years of opposition, lack of discipline, people just saying whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it and not, and, and it wasn't coherent to the electorate. And so, you know, the spin doctors that came in then were designed to try and kind of get some sort of control of the process. But in the in the time since then, it's become more of a, a complete control of the process to the point where there's no authenticity whatsoever. So it will be the, it, the, the politician who can break free of this and can be authentic. And often this is what people term as populist politicians, because Boris Johnson could sort of do this and communicate direct to people in a way that seemed to sort of step outside of those tram lines that the, the spin doctors had imposed, will profit and will benefit. Now, perhaps for ill in the case of Boris Johnson, who was a particularly skilled individual at playing things by rules he made up himself. I mean, he was, you know, whatever you think of him, he was extraordinary in terms of the way he communicated. So, you know, he did it. But others... All I would say is if the if, if future politicians are sitting there thinking about how to connect, they should perhaps try and move away from the spin doctor control approach and just try and give themselves some leeway to actually talk to the people. Because that's what the greats, you know, if the modern greats of British politics are Mrs. Thatcher and Tony Blair, even though Blair understood the power of spin doctors, he was uh, much more gifted than, than so many of them are. Just who just parrot stuff. He was much more mm. fluent. He, he believed in something. That's what we need to get back to. That's the positive side of the equation. But you also mentioned in the book that there is a, a negative side and it's reflective on us as voters and as, as viewers. So you say that, and quite correctly, in the modern age, every slip of the tongue is a gaffe, every yeah. apology a humiliation, every tentative conversation about policy options a pretext for a political row. How much are we to blame as viewers for the way that politicians conduct themselves and that really fierce message discipline? Well, I don't, I don't know if that's viewers so much as journalists, to be honest. I think, you know, I mean, I think that I think both sides have created problems. So the politicians create problems because they won't speak. Either they won't be scrutinised at all or they won't speak properly or they won't just talk normally and explain things. The journalists at their worst are just looking for the next story and so just want to, you know, amplify any interesting thing that's said as a gaffe or, or a, you know, a, a policy change. But I mentioned in the book, there's a few occasions when there's been sort of overtures by the, but usually by the journalist side to try and reconnect, reset and recalibrate this relationship between, between journalists and politicians and actually sort of say, can we stop the silliness, you know, on, on, on the one side, the gaffes and the other side, the lack of communication, but it never really works because you, you know, what's whenever, whenever it's been attempted, 
it's usually the, the the journalists who sort of you know lay down their arms, and then the, the the politicians come in and shoot them anyway because they're sort of they haven't signed up to it. And I don't know. There's no mechanism really to get it. The only way it's going to happen is if if politicians. It's why I alluded to a little earlier about getting rid of spin doctors to some extent is if they can see the advantage for them in because you know Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher saw an advantage in going out there and submitting themselves to this and talking freely and explaining what they feel and what they think because they had ideologies actually you know they had you know in, in Mrs Thatcher's obviously particular ideology Tony Blair was a kind of a complicated thing but about repositioning his party they believed in it fundamentally and and where so where I mean John, Boris Johnson did not believe in anything fundamentally right apart from Boris Johnson so therefore you can't go onto television and confidently espouse something if you don't believe anything so and and too many of the people that follow are in that camp although Liz Truss apparently did believe in something but equally wasn't willing to come and talk about it so so it doesn't always follow but do you see what I mean I think I think it's blame on both sides in terms of the public and I do sometimes think the public don't believe the, I mean, whether they, um, it's not their fault, perhaps, but something's been lost in terms of our civic duty as, as, as like, you know, as like electors and, and, and voters and citizens. You know, we have to do a bit of hard work as well. We can't just expect the journalists to, to do the questions, the politicians to have the answers, and, and we can just sit on the sidelines and say they're all, they're all rubbish. There needs to be some kind of, you know, literacy in, polit- in politics amongst the general public. Whether that exists or not is, you know, is questionable. And how you fix it, I don't really know. Mm, that's a really interesting little insight around the sense that we may have lost something around civic duty. Yeah. What do you put that down to? I don't know if you look at. I don't know if you're aware of a program called Question Time. Are you aware yes. of that show? Yeah. I don't know if you have a similar one in Australia. Yeah, it's Q. It would be Q and A is the equivalent okay. in Australia. So what you have there is you have this, and the other example of this is Vox Pops in news in news packages. Well, what you do is you have a sort of elevation of the citizen to a status of sort of untouchable expert in everything. So if they feel something and say something, they're kind of right. Now, the reason that that happens is because obviously they're the people that elect the politicians in the end and they are being and they're supposed to be held accountable by those people. But if those people just have reflexive kind of emotional responses and never engage in the actual detail, then why should they be elevated to that level? You see if you see what I mean. So Mm. um, so you, you, you had a syndrome when after the, there's a, there's a very funny comedy sketch over here about Question Time, which was that around the time of the bankers' bonuses, controversy around the financial crisis, and the guy just, just puts his hand up in Question Time, he goes to him and he just says, the bankers, the bonuses, the bonuses, the bankers, and the, the whole audience just gives a massive ovation because he's just said all the things that we hate and, and he said nothing constructive. Um, and I think that is a sort of feature of, of where we've ended up. But politicians don't help us in that regard, but I do think it's it's, it's got to be, the media, the politicians, and the public. Look, all I can do is write a book. I don't know and talk to, talk to you and other people, but that's what we have to try and change. Well, what you do know better than almost anyone is how journalists can pierce through that shield of message discipline. What are yeah. what are practical ways that a really good journalist, when you've got a politician who has obviously got a series of talking points and their minders have said, right, stick to the script, stick to the script. What ways can a really good interviewer pierce that 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 shield? Okay, great. Um, so there's a few things. One is, um, I'll give you an example with, which relates to Boris Johnson. So this is about one the first, the first thing and the fundamental thing is very good research. Okay, so that, that's not just knowing everything about subjects, but also researching how they tend to respond to particular questions. So in 2019, for example, Boris Johnson was going to be interviewed by Andrew Neil. This was to run, this was to become the leader of the Tory party and therefore the prime minister. Before the general election, this was a party election. And we looked at all his interviews and we noticed that Whatever he, pretty much whatever he was asked, 
early on in the interview, he would say that he'd reduced the murder rate or the crime rate in London to a particular percentage, and that this was something that recommended him as a, as a leader. It didn't matter what the question was, because none of the questions related to the crime rate in London, when he was mayor of London, that was. But he always, he always did it. So that was one thing. The other thing he always did, he always talked about the GATT agreement. So this is, this is I mean, this is very arcane, but you know, this is a sort of 1947 trade agreement that was relevant to the question of what would happen if the, e, if the UK left the EU without a deal about how to do trade in the future. And there was, a, there was paragraph 5B of that particular GATT agreement said that you could continue on, on, the, on the arrangements that already was, were in existence. I only have to explain that to make sense of the story. So we knew that he understood that clause. He was regularly known to talk about 5B. It's all fine. 5B of the GATT agreement, 1947, all sounds very impressive. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sort us out. So those were two things he said. So the research is understand the things, but also understand what he's going to say. On the first point about the, about the crime rate, Fine, but the crime rate would reduce by a higher percentage in every other area of the country at the time that he was referring to. So when he came back with this irrelevant point that he was that was designed to kind of confuse matters but make him look good, we were ready with a fact that just exploded the relevance of it and also showed it actually was not even a, something to boast about. So that was effective because it obviously showed showed up his tactics, but also laid the ground for the next thing, which was the conversation about five B. Our question, and there's a kind of debate amongst the people involved about who actually thought of this. I maintain it was me. Um, <laughs> thought that what we should ask was if you if, if if he knows what five B is, it's very unlikely he knows what five C is, because like a student in a seminar who who's, who's just kind of crammed in order to get through that that half an hour, Johnson's not going to know the depth of it, and it, and indeed he walked straight into that trap. We we danced him down the road to five B. We invited him to talk about five B. He spoke about it with great sort of confidence. Andrew Neil had a slip of the tongue, and it's allowed about his about the clause himself. So Johnson was full of bravado and saying, you know, saying it's all about five B. Get it right. Get the detail right, Andrew. Which of course is ironic because Andrew Neil is Mister Detail and Boris Johnson is Mister Not Detail. <laughs> and then Andrew just said, and what about five C? And the way I describe it in the book is, you know, the birds stopped singing, the traffic stopped on outside the, the, the studio. Everything fell silent as it became obvious that he'd walked into this monumental trap and that he was going to have, and they had no way out. And in the end, Andrew said, you don't know, do you? And he said, no. And he tried to laugh it off, but it was revealing. And it wasn't, by the way, what they call in America. I don't know what they call it that in Australia, a gotcha. It yeah, wasn't a gotcha. Here. Is that what they say in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. It really annoys me because a gotcha is okay. Here, a gotcha might be how much is a pint of milk, how much is a liter of milk, whatever it is, and they give the wrong answer, and and you say, well, you're you're out of touch, and that's a cheap gotcha. This was a fundamental question at the heart of the election that he was running. He was running for to be leader. That he understood the detail that he could deliver a, a Brexit that would be okay for the country, and it was based on sand. And I think we 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 demonstrated that. He was then re he was then elected to the to the to the, the post of leader of the Conservative Party. So, it, you know, you can only do what you can do. But those those are examples of, of of research being the thing. One other thing that comes to mind quickly. Well, sorry to to keep banging on, but please please do is um when it comes to the, the repetition and sort of just not answering questions. The, I think and I don't think it's done enough. And I think I try and do this when I work with I work with Beth Rigby on Sky News. Is um is call it out. See what people what politicians want and what a lot of political journalists kind of go along with is that there these conversations exist in some parallel universe where there's not normal interaction you spoke to your 
partner or your family member or whatever, and they spoke to you like this, you would just at some point stop them and say, what? <laughs> Sorry? You just keep saying the same thing over and over again. And I'm asking you a question. You're ignoring it. So I think it's really important sometimes to introduce an element of reality into that fake world that they try and create and say, what? Sorry, you, I know you've said that. And viewers will know you keep saying it over and over again in exactly the same formulation. We've heard it. Can you please answer the question? You know, and so that may work or it may not, but at least it points it up. Yeah, I've had the exact same feeling because, you know, you don't need to be an expert in politics to see this happening before your eyes, to see there's a question and clicks with you that you go, it's got nothing to do with the the question, that answer. That's obviously been pre- prepared why don't more politicians uh, what sorry why don't more journalists do that why don't they call out the bleeding obvious well i think i actually think um i'm, I'm just writing actually the the four the a new a new chapter for the, the paperback of the book that's coming out next year and i do think i think that the people a lot of the people who work in political journalism they sort of think that politicians and the rules around them are sort of immutable that they'll never change and that they're kind of that and, and, and they do sort of re- exist in this reality of course they're going to say that because x it's sophisticated to understand that, of course, politicians are going to not answer the question because they have all these different considerations. I'm just not going to buy that. I just don't think we should buy that. You know, but mm. I think they do. I think I think people. That's why I never really like to hang out with politicians or be or their advisors. I like to kind of maintain a a distance from it because it's only then that you sort of just see this for what it is. Um, mm. so, but look, I mean, I think I think that and th- there are other reasons. I mean, the other reasons. Let's be frank about about political journalists is that they depend upon politicians for their stories and for access and for all those things. And, you know, the danger is you get too close or you need to be too close to do your job properly. And if you started saying the emperor's got no clothes on, you know, then you get chucked out. Some people would would argue that there is another reason, and that is that there are many journalists today that do have an ideological agenda, do have a bias. So, there's a lovely line in your book. You, you say your approach to political interviewing can be boiled down to one question, what is the truth? Mm-hmm. You go on to say this book is about the search for truth when a powerful person sits down with a first-class interviewer to answer the important questions. Now, I read that and I was, I was inspired by it, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it may feel a bit quaint today for some people. I think it feels like more and more journalists today are interested in pushing an ideological agenda as opposed to seeking the truth. To give you an example, I, I put out a tweet uh, a while ago, and I asked, could you name one journalist who you are unsure how they would vote in an Australian general election? Mm-hmm. And there were very, very few compelling answers, maybe one or two, which I agreed with. Is that ideological lens in journalism a bigger problem than it was, say, when you started your career? And how do you mitigate against it? Mm, it's good. It's, these are good questions. I mean, I mean, first of all, I, I, I have to see most of this in the context of my time at the BBC. So, because the BBC, obviously, the BBC has a, a has a you know avowed position of impartiality. That's not to say that it's not the same at ITV and Sky News, but it's it's a difference because it's paid for by the license fee. There's a particular imperative to to impartiality, and so I've really always embraced impartiality. Now, the thing is that nobody in the world comes to the room without their own views in reality, but it's about in that context striving for. Striving to striving to achieve a very difficult thing, which is impartiality. So you don't you don't pretend that it's a sort of exact science, but you must try and live it. And for me, the reason that works and the reason that can be that's effective is that you, as a, a producer, an editor, or a presenter, you're not interested in 
furthering your political viewpoint. That's not why you're in the job. You're interested in whoever it might be, you're interviewing, revealing the truth about that person or about their party or their policy. And that that is of greater significance and interest to you than than anything to do with your own ideology. So that's how I practically approach it. To be honest, I, I think there are people I've worked with in the BBC and ITV and Sky. Some of them, I might guess their political persuasion, others not so much. But let's look at Andrew Neil. As you say, he's the chairman of The Spectator. It's a right of centre magazine. He's a man that's come from business and from journalism and who doesn't really hide his own perspective. But does he deliver impartial, valuable interviews of the highest order? Or has he had a track record of doing that? Absolutely. So, you know, people on the left in Britain object to Andrew Neil because he's on the right, you know, so therefore he can't be fair. But people, everyone's got a perspective, but it's how they execute the job itself. And Andrew Neil is, you know, it's a living example of that and exemplifies it. And the same I would say is true of people who are, you know, who are regarded as left of centre. If they're a good political interviewer, they're not interested in that. They're interested in the truth. Now, some journalists are not as good as others as leave, at leaving their leaving those views behind at the door. And some aren't even asked to at different broadcasters. So, you know, I would, I think that's how I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I approach that. I think that answers part of it. And I agree in theory. The thought that has crossed my mind is that there are more obvious signs of bias and they could be, you know, I mentioned Kerry O'Brien at the start of the interview. He's made no no bones about the fact that he is left of centre. Yeah. Andrew Neil similarly, you know, is, is right of centre and, and you're aware of those biases. And in some respects, they are less dangerous because they're, they're out in the open and people know where those presenters are coming from, yeah, yeah, those yeah. interviewers are coming from. There are more subtle and insidious forms of bias. So it could be how frequently you interview one side of politics relative to the other. It could be which topics you choose to talk about with specific people, how you frame how you frame particular stories can have mm-hmm. a huge impact on how they're perceived. What yeah. practical steps can, can journalists and, and editors, I suppose, take to guard against those more insidious forms of bias if the objective is the search for truth? Yeah, so I think I think the when it comes to that kind of more complicated, you know, issue, I think it's it's it should be a product of the kind of interrogating of the subject you you um you go through when you're preparing for the interview. So, you know, you don't otherwise you end up with people who just, you know, for example, I remember being back at the BBC once back in the early parts of the uh, like 2010 when the, when the conservative government came in and people were going to we were going to interview people about education policy and the the general approach of people in the room one day was that we obviously we need to interrogate how bad an idea free schools are so these were these were schools that were you know taken outside local authority control they have much more autonomy and i remember saying well why do we come at it from the perspective that they're a bad thing i mean we need to come at it from a perspective which is we want to test whether they're effective or not. How do we know whether they're successful or not? Can you explain to me why this would be a good idea rather than this is a really, really bad idea. How dare you introduce it? So that, but that, all I'm saying is that, that actually flows out of a kind of environment you create as an editor, which is open and, and on guard to sort of the, the tendency of, of people to fall into a particular perspective about particular issues. So you need to, you know, it's, that's part of the job to say, well, let's come at it from a, a completely different perspective. So, you know, so that, that, that's my, that's, that's my answer to that is it, it, you need to be vigilant for it. And I think, you know, I say in the book, in terms of the BBC, there's a lot of talk about 
uh, significant individuals coming from the right who are powerful in the BBC or have been, or people leaving the BBC to go and work for the Conservative Party. But as the sort of centre of gravity of the organisation, I felt when I worked there, was actually sort of left-leaning in a kind of soft left sort of way. And so I, I found it was important to just try and disrupt that a bit. And actually, when, when you do, people are like, oh, yeah, of course, we're being impartial. And they realise what they're doing. And then, and then it, it, you get a more successful outcome. Yeah, that's really interesting. That conscious awareness of it, yeah. I think, is a really important point. I want to get your thoughts on misinformation and disinformation, which are two of the buzzwords of our time in media. The UK and Australia are both grappling with how do you deal with misinformation and disinformation. In Australia, we've had a referendum recently where misinformation yeah. was a alleged reason that was put forward by the yes side as, as why potentially the no side won. There is going to be in Australia a looming battle over misinformation bills and government regulation of speech particularly online. Similarly in the UK, the online safety bill is one example of of where there is attempts being made to try and regulate speech. My question, without, I'm, I'm sure you're not as familiar with the Australian context, but more on principle, where do you stand on the principle of regulating misinformation or disinformation? I mean, I, have to, I, I kind of have to keep coming back to the book really on, on, on this stuff. Um, so let me think. Um, I don't. I'll be. I'll be agnostic on the question of regulation of it, but I think that I think it's obviously a challenge, and I think the most powerful period of that challenge in the UK came in the Brexit referendum, when you know what actually we had was we had both sides saying things that were that were sort of partial, not really true, didn't really stand up to scrutiny, and you ended up having an argument about things that were fake or lies or whatever you want to call it, rather than a fundamental argument about the actual subject of what would happen if we left the EU. So I, I think, so if we look, when we look back on that, I think we can say that that was not the finest hour of political journalism in the UK because it, we allowed ourselves to sort of be driven. And I think this is understandable, but it, it looks it, it looks like a mistake in retrospect, driven by the campaigns that boil down complex issues to slogans on the back of a bus, on the side of a bus, or, or elsewhere. And this is both sides, by the way. So we were sort of led by that particular narrative rather than taking an independent step back and trying to assess the veracity or otherwise of, of, the, of, the, of both perspectives. So, you know, we were just kind of led by the nose by them. And, and I think that's, you know, that, that's been the most prominent example in the book that I cover about, about sort of things that simply aren't true that, that, that ended up becoming kind of common currency. I'm not sure that really answers your question. No, it does, but I think it, it, it also raises a follow-up question, which is if those journalists didn't have the powers of scrutiny to go beyond the slogans and beyond the campaign messaging, which has been the traditional role of, of journalists, does that suggest that the quality of journalists is getting worse in the UK? I think what it is is, you know, referendums, they only come around, I don't know how often they've happened in, in Australia. I know there's been a recent one, but the last referendum, there was a, there was the referendum in Scotland for independence, but the last sort of national, you know, UK referendum would have been the, of any note, would have been the, the one about um, uh, the, the EU back in the 70s. So I don't think, it seems to me, look, in retrospect, it wasn't the bad journalists, but it was like, we're used to covering election campaigns. There's one, there's these parties who are pursuing a particular narrative that they, they've, they've invented and we follow it because it's the battle between the parties. And the problem with that is that if they're both bullshitting you, right, then then how, what, then where, where's the person going to put their hand up and say that, say that this is bullshit because they're both doing it. So in other words, there had to be more, the, the, in re, again, in retrospect, I don't want to, I don't particularly 
I mean, I was there and I was doing a particular show, which I, and I looked back and I was dreading it. I went back to these programs to think of the ones I made. And actually, I must say, I would say this, but I was pretty pleased with how we did it because we did call this stuff out. But the overall drive of it was a bit like an election campaign. And I'm not sure that's the way to do it. And I think that there would be less, there's lessons learned, you know, from that. And, and, and whenever one of these comes again, I'd hope that there would be a different approach to that, more of an adjudication on truth. But it will come back to your points, though. You see, the trouble is, if you try and adjudicate the truth in something so complicated and so partisan and so passionately felt, then people challenge, they challenge your adjudication or they challenge the possibility of any adjudication, really. The adjudication becomes impossible if there's no common ground on what the kind of parameters of the, of the adjudication should be, if you see what I mean. And yeah, that's your, your, your point about subtle bias. You know, and it's not to say it's not actually legitimate that it's the, but how do you ever settle a question then? Maybe you mm. can't. I agree entirely. And I think you've seen this phenomena play out with fact checking units that a lot yeah. of media organizations have now, where they've gone from checking facts, things that can be objectively true or untrue, to what I would call contestable opinions. And I think a lot of the time, if you see in Australia an ABC fact checking unit, BBC fact-checking unit, they're really looking at something which could be a contestable opinion. And in Australia, a lot of the debate and a lot of the things that were called misinformation, in my view, were predictions about what would happen in the future if a referendum was to pass or to fail. Uh, so so it's, I think it's, it's really tricky. But I think this thing comes back to your whole book, which is I think it is the role of really good journalists to tease out where that truth is. And I think that is the role of the media. And I think that's the role of hopefully a really educated public. It is murky waters when when the government potentially is is playing that role. I want to finish on the future of TV journalism, which is where you've spent your career. It is your passion. Mm-hmm. We live in an age where TV journalism is declining. Uh, sorry, TV viewership, I should say, is declining. Gen Z attention spans are perhaps less than previous generations. Social media is made for sound bites. It's not made for long form forensic interviewing. Does political journalism have a future on television? God, yes, it has to have a future. Absolutely, it has to have a future. In fact, well, for all these reasons, it's, it's, it's more important than ever that it has a future. One thing I want to say, just to pick up on a point you were making there about around contestability and around the most important thing, and the thing I find sort of most depressing about my experience, largely in, in, in interaction on social media down the years, as a in, in recent years as a kind of editor, was there's a mindset amongst people. They're actually sort of, they regard as bias also sort of offensive in some way, the mere presence of people on television who disagree with them. They don't, they, for some, they've lost somehow the, the, the passion and the, uh, and the, the welcoming toward, uh, of, towards debate. You know, so, so we, we, for example, I'm forever, even now, and I don't even, I'm not even there anymore. I get attacked for the Tufton streets. If, if you're, no, you won't mind to be aware of this. This, this is basically think tanks in the, in the UK. There's, there's a street called Tufton street where, a number of them uh, are located. These are tend to, tend to be think tanks on the right of politics. There's lots of conversation about the fact they're not transparent about their funding. And I understand that's an issue and I think it has to be referred to. But these people do not want these people on the telly. Okay, They do not want to hear from them, despite the fact that if you want to argue against them and win the argument, you can't do it unless they're there. And secondly, they're clearly influential people and ideas in the in the country that you live in. So why would you want to not hear from them with all the provisos you might need to talk about the funding question, etc.? And I'll come to all that because it's it's that's the sort of environment we're in. 
Now, and and mm. so there are, there are contestable questions, but we all need to if we we all need to embrace debate. It's like in the UK we had we around the trans debate. So we did an interview with Beth Rigby on um, uh, with with Stonewall, which was a very sort of powerful interview where we examined some of these sort of arguments around uh, trans rights. Now, one of the problems I think, whatever you think about what should happen to trans people in terms of their whether they need a certificate or whatever it might be for is they th- there was a policy amongst some on that in that movement to not have debates so not have no debate was part of it because you we can't debate our existence they said now in fact it's turned out that that's ill-served that community because they're actually the issues have become much more contested and blown up and difficult because there was a reluctance to have a proper debate about it so i just want to make a plea to anyone to think it's a good thing if somebody if there's someone i used to say that people you sometimes you disagree with will sometimes be on TV, and that is something you should be glad about. So anyway, that's that's a little bit. It just it came to my mind. I wanted to talk about that point. In terms of political journalism and social media, I mean, a lot of the content on social media that's that's kind of political is derived from TV output. So I would argue a long form political interview, which may be watched by in the UK, say seven or eight hundred thousand people, if it's on the right time of day. May reach many, many more by be, by being kind of cut up and served in in different ways on social media, and that's fine because it's only the process of sitting down for that long that you get to to the sorts of content that might actually be nourishing and valuable that would then be worth sending out there on social media. You'll get better stuff. You know, we only got you know the the five C thing with Boris Johnson only only went only went sort of viral because we took the time to prepare for it and the time to do the interview. So, that, so these two things actually coexist and are simpatico together. If you have you have serious journalism, then actually that will produce good social media and better social media than seven minute interviews where someone's the, the interviewer is just trying to get some kind of cheap headline and the interviewee is trying to say nothing. And then maybe it's a car crash because one of them fails to do what they set out to do. That's on social media. There you go. It's not. There's nothing in it. Whereas I'm saying serious political journalism on television can serve social media well by producing better content. You've watched political communicators for your entire adult life and as you were growing up as well. What characteristics do the best political communicators share? In terms of, are you talking about inter- interviewers or interviewees? I'd actually like to get your perspectives on both. So let's start with interviewers. So, I mean, the best the best ones, I mean, it's, it, the best ones are prepared very I mean, the... So it's about what well they come into are very well prepared and they are they are curious they want to know the truth they're not they're not pursuing sort of one agenda over another so they're interested in that they listen I mean one of the things you know you need to listen to what the interviewer say, the interviewee says it's only if you listen to what they say that you might detect you know stuff that's there that's not just the parroting of the slogans courage you need to speak the truth about what you're hearing so like I said earlier if someone is just going through this bizarre process of speaking in a bizarre way and saying nothing, you call that out and you have the courage to do so. So you need to be fearless. I mean, Beth Rigby is fearless, I would say, and she's an excellent interviewer. But also, look, I would like a culture which Brian Walden and Margaret Thatcher used to have, which was it wasn't a conflict. It wasn't conflict necessarily. It was an environment where there was intellectual curiosity about what the other person was saying. At least till the final interview. But at least until the final interview, which is a well, that's a whole big story. I mean, I'd love to tell it, but it's um that 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 final interview was a different thing. But before that, they had a conversation on air, and I've been reviewing even further, going back into the archive and looking at that material even further. And it is just extraordinary that that we see in real time the evolution of her public position on 
the trade unions or whatever, because he teases out of her a willingness to go a little bit further. And it's that curiosity. And, and it's like I said about debate, we should, people involved in politics and involved in political media should love ideas and they should love debate. And that's what the best political interviewers do, as well as, look, let's be honest, there is an element of blood sport in this, right? You do enjoy the drama. You enjoy the coup de grace. You enjoy the, the moments of, you know, the unrepeatable kind of magic. And t- that's one of the things about TV is that TV, TV is magic. It can be magic. There can be lots of fairly mundane stuff and then there'll be magic. So I'm not, I'm not high-minded enough to say I'm not. I'm just interested in ideas and intellectual thoughts. I'm interested in drama too. But they come together. Um, and Margaret Thatcher and Brian Walden, they came together. I think we can cover off interview ease in uh, in another podcast because I think okay. that's a lovely note to end the conversation on. Rob, why is this lying bastard lying to me? It really was one of my favourite books of the year as a media and politics nerd. It was just <laughs> deliciously funny. And the way that you tell stories like Walden and Thatcher and, and then Blair and, and Dimbleby and all these great characters in such a, a lovely, witty way, revealing these truths around the importance of holding politicians to account. I thought it was brilliant. Congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the wonderful career in political journalism and looking forward to chatting again. Thank you for coming on Australiana. Cheers, Will. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.